Well, open your Bibles to Genesis 41 this morning. You probably already could tell, if you haven't been here, what our passage was going to be as Matt read that for us this morning. Last week we looked at chapter 40, and we learned about living in in living life in in light of the of the journey as we as we introduced it. And as believers, we don't live our lives with the perspective of are we are we there yet? But we understand that every person, every event, in every day is being arranged by God to prepare us for what He has in store next. And that's a that's an exciting thought. It's a comforting thought. The destination is not just our only focus. We have to remember, and we do remember, that, that God is at work in our lives all uh, along the way. And that's, I don't think that's ever clearer in the, in the story of Joseph than whenever you see him for this long period of time in prison. It wasn't the end of the journey. It was a, it was a stopover. It was a way station, as it was called, en route, where God was leading him. And the Lord has has much more in mind. And we're going we're gonna to see that uh, today. You're going to see Joseph emerge from prison. You're going to see the exaltation of Joseph. And even in the midst of that, we're going to see that God has, has much more in, in mind. God is always one step ahead. He's every step ahead. But one of the ways that we can say it is he's one step ahead. Uh, you can see that all through the, the story of Joseph. One commentator put it this way. When Joseph was on his way to visit his brothers, God had the pit in mind. When he was in the pit, he had Potiphar in mind. When he was with Potiphar, he had prison in mind. When he was in prison, God had Pharaoh in mind. And when you'll see Joseph this morning with Pharaoh, God has Jacob's preservation in mind. And when you come to the end of the story of Joseph, God still has more in mind. In fact, if you really want to, to helicopter up and look at the big picture, as we're trying to do in the foundation series, this story is not just about Joseph or about Jacob and his sons. This story is about you. It's about, it's about me. Because from Abraham's seed comes the seed. And as God leads Joseph all along the way, he had your salvation in mind. He was preparing for it. And so I think it's a good thing to remember, even as I was preparing the introduction this morning, that, that wherever you're at in life, just as we, we, we found that nugget last week, that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Wherever you're, you're at, God always has, has more in mind whether you're obediently going along like Joseph started the story, whether you're in the pit, or whether you're exalted to the right hand of the most powerful man on the planet. It's all part of a larger plan, and God has, has more in mind. And, and I think that chapter 41 just shouts that loudly to us. It also declares to us that all this world has to offer, with all of its resources, all of its power, all of its comforts, even when they come to you because of God's favor, those things are nothing compared to the more that God has in mind. What awaits a believer who looks for a city not made with, with hands? Amen. Open Genesis 41 and, 
I really think this is one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire story of Joseph. It's the, it's, if, if, you're, if you start the story out, it, you know, you're kind of muddling through, okay, who, is, who are the characters and back in chapter 37? And then you're immediately plunged down into the depths. Oh, this is a bad story. This is horrible. This obedient kid, he's doing the right thing and his, his brothers sell him into slavery. How bad? And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Well, now, this morning, he's going to rise from the ashes. He's going to be exalted to this, to this great place of wealth and of power. But God has more in, in mind. And I'm going to give you the, the outline as I've, I've been giving you. We're going to walk through the passage and then I'll share with you some, some implications if I would summarize chapter 41 to apply it to your life, I would say God has more in mind than, than earthly blessings. This chapter is very long, and so there's a lot of subpoints under each one of those, but to simplify it, verses 1 through 13, you're going you're gonna to hear about Pharaoh's dreams. Verses 14 through 36, you're going to see Joseph's interpretation. Verses 37 through 49, Pharaoh's exaltation of Joseph. Notice who does the exalting and who is exalted. And then the climax of the story in verses 50 through 56, Joseph's exaltation of, of Yahweh. Let's look at Pharaoh's dreams first. Look at verse 1. It says, It came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Now this is the third pair of dreams. And God, all along, has been establishing Joseph as the dream interpreter, hasn't he? This is the third set of dreams. They come the same way. They're, they're in twos. They're, they're, they're told in, in two parts to declare the surety of them, that they come from God. You find the same thing. Nobody has the interpretation except Joseph. And God has been positioning Joseph for this moment since chapter 37. And then Pharaoh, we, we hear the dreams that, that Pharaoh has. We get kind of get to, to see inside his, his mind. And, and this is like a really bad horror story, okay? I mean, you've heard these dreams before, but, but pay attention to some details. Pharaoh sees seven filled-out cows coming up out of the Nile. Oh, this is a this is a nice comfy dream, you know. Here are these here's my cows, the cows of Egypt. They're 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 wading along the river. Cows do that. They go to the water. They're they're feeding in on the reeds alongside of the river. And then all of a sudden, seven ugly emaciated cows with big teeth don't eat the reeds. They eat the fat cows. I mean, these these cows eat other cows. This is not just a pretty story where you're counting sheep and and all of a sudden, wow, you know, it's a troubling sight. And then Pharaoh wakes up, startles him, and he goes back to sleep. And then he dreams again, seven lush ears of grain sprouting from a single stalk. Well, that's, that's interesting. There's one. And then there is a single stalk growing near with seven shriveled ears. And all of a sudden, these ears get teeth and they consume the, 
the good grain. I mean, this is like a low-budget horror film. In the, the word behold is used six times in the, in the original language. You can see it the first time in verse 1. Behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly, verse 3, behold, seven cows came up. Six times the, in the original language the, the, the idea of behold is used. And it's, Pharaoh knows that this is, this is important. He's troubled by, by, the, by the dreams. It even tells us that. Verse 8, it says, Now it came to pass in the morning, his spirit was troubled. Now you've had crazy dreams before, right? You've eaten too much pizza before you went to bed. You've woken up in the middle of the night going, What in the world did I just dream? Okay, But you forget about it. That's not the case for Pharaoh here. These weren't, this wasn't just, you know, bad little Caesars or whatever. It's, it's, it's something that's really troubling him. And he knows that this is important. And he, he knows that he has to have an interpretation. And it says, So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Very key. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. And there was no one who could interpret for for Pharaoh. Now, I don't know if you paid attention to that before, but all of the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men, we're not told how long that took, but that wasn't just a few minutes. He didn't just come out, they're all kind of waiting on Pharaoh to wake up in the morning just to interpret his dreams, so he calls them in from the next room. I mean, this would have taken some considerable effort and time, and, and, and Moses wants us to see that Pharaoh is very troubled by this. I mean, he doesn't just say, hey, I had this crazy dream. What do you think about it? He, he's really searching for an interpretation. And I think Moses wants us to see that, that Pharaoh is very troubled and he goes to great lengths to find an answer. And he also wants us to hear all wise men, all magicians, and he also wants us to hear none. None of the pagan magic or human wisdom has the answer for Pharaoh. And that sets us up for God to put Himself on display through His servants. God works the same way in, in your life. Because we respond typically to circumstances, the things that we're troubled by very much like Pharaoh, don't we? We are troubled by something and we exhaust all human wisdom and all earthly efforts possible before we turn to to the Lord, all the magicians of the world, all the wisdom of the earth, and then we get desperate, and then we turn to God to hear. I've told you my testimony before, and my salvation, it wasn't saved till I was 24 years of age, and it wasn't because I hadn't heard the gospel, because I didn't believe in Jesus or heaven and hell. It's, it's I never got to the point in my life where, where I knew for sure that, that, that I know where to turn. I mean, I might have gotten to the bottom where it was, you know, 99.9%, but I still held on to that one-tenth of a percent that, that, was, that was me. And there's something that may happen here. I had hope in something other than God. I mean, there's something that may bail me out of this situation until I got there, until, until I came to the point in my life where I really I didn't have any place else to look but, but up. And I still battle against that today, don't you? 
I still battle against that God has to bring me to the point that I exhaust all of my human efforts before I will turn completely and totally to the Lord. Well, that's where Pharaoh is, and Pharaoh is not even a believer. In verse 9, it says, Then, once Pharaoh is here, once he's exhausted every option that he has, then God brings the chief butler onto the stage, and he spoke to Pharaoh. And he says, I remember my faults. I, re- I remember what happened to me. And I remember that there's one who can interpret dreams, and he's a young Hebrew. That's how he defines him. He says, when Pharaoh was angry with your servant, he put me in custody, and we each had a dream. Each of us, we couldn't figure out the interpretation. Verse 12, now there was a young Hebrew man with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him, and he interpreted our dreams. And it came to pass exactly as we said. I'm proof right here, proof that I'm standing before you is that it was true. He said that I would be placed back in my position and the other guy, and that's exactly what happened. And God has been at work all along the way to bring the story to this point. From chapter 37, Joseph is established as the dream interpreter. He gives Pharaoh the dream. It troubles Pharaoh. The interpretation is past human wisdom, past finding out. And at the right moment, God's servant is in the position to declare his name. Now, you remember in chapter 40, do you remember last week when I, I talked about how pivotal it was when, when Joseph declares his faith, when, when he gives the interpretation to, of the first dream, he says, now, when you're restored, he's talking about this guy, when you're restored, remember me, I was, I'm a slave in this land, and I come from the land of the, the Hebrews. Egypt wouldn't have declared it as the land of of the Hebrews, and they didn't even have all the land. It was a statement of faith. And that's exactly what you find this butler remembering him. Remembering. He remembers two things. He remembers Joseph's prediction came true and that Joseph is a Hebrew, connecting it to the Abrahamic covenant. And all of that sets us up for Joseph's interpretation. Look at verse 14. Here's point two in your outline. Joseph's interpretation. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and he quickly brought him out of the the dungeon. All these little key words in the narrative. He quickly brings him out. He doesn't go, well, let me think about it. Okay, go get the guy. I mean, you know, I'm looking all over the country here, trying to find somebody to interpret the dreams, and you're right here beside me, and somebody came true, go get him. Look at what happens next, though quickly brings him out of the dungeon. Now remember, Pharaoh is very, very troubled, and he really wants an answer, but look at what happens to Joseph before he's ever brought before Pharaoh, because this will set up something for later. He shaved and changed his clothing and came to, to Pharaoh. Egyptians, godless people, were shaven. I'll let that sit for a second. Amen. Kidding. It is true that the Egyptians were shaven. And what they do here is they prepare 
Joseph to look like an Egyptian to go before Pharaoh. Before he ever goes before Pharaoh. They replace his clothing and remove his hair to make him look more like an Egyptian. And this act is to make Joseph presentable to come before Pharaoh, but it's not a throwaway statement. It sets up a contrast that will become clear later in the story. In verse 15, after that happens, Pharaoh states his situation. Here's what happened. Pharaoh retells the story. I won't go back through the story, but Pharaoh gives his interpretation of it. I mean, he makes the cows, the, the little gaunt cows with teeth and, the, and the, 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 the little heads of grain. With te- I mean, he, he really he jazzes them up. I mean, these are really scary things. And Joseph then gets an opportunity to, to declare his faith. Pharaoh repeats, look at verse 24, what we already know, and the heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. In verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, now it's Joseph's turn to respond. Now before you hear the words of Joseph, understand something here. Understand this is the most powerful man in the world. And understand that Joseph is a slave. And Joseph has been at least, we don't know how long, but it's possible 13 years in prison, in a pit. That's how he's described it. He's quickly brought up out of the pit. This man that Joseph is standing before is not just the most powerful man on the planet. He's considered by the Egyptians in the kingdom that Joseph is in to be God incarnate. Okay, this is not the president of the United States or Vladimir Putin or somebody like that. In in the mind of the Egyptians and in Pharaoh's mind, he's God. He's like Caesar. He's God incarnate. And yet Joseph shows no concern in sharing with him where the real power lies and who the real God is. Look at what he says in verse 25. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. Prophetically, right out of the gate. God, not God incarnate Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28. This thing which has been spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He repeats it. Look at verse 32. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because this thing is established by God and God will shortly bring this to pass. And then he tells Pharaoh what he needs to do. Joseph declares where the real power lies. It's not in me as the interpreter of dreams, and it's not in you, Pharaoh, or not anywhere else. God is the one who has the, has the true, true power. Look back at verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He tells him that before he even listens to Pharaoh's dreams. 
very different from the magicians who made themselves valuable by what they could conjure up. I mean, the magicians are not like the guys pulling the rabbit out of the hats. I mean, they're, they're hacking up animals, they're looking at entrails, they're, they're shaking up bones and throwing them out on the ground. I mean, as confusing as they could possibly make it is what they want to do so they can look at it and say, ah, oh, that's what I see, so they can remain important. Very different. Joseph says, I, power's not me, I don't have any, any ability. And it's a very dramatic statement of faith, <clears throat> God. God of Hebrews, the God that a Hebrew slave knows, he's the one who will give you the answer. Joseph plays the role of a prophet here. He gives the right interpretation in verses 25 to 32. He declares what Pharaoh should do in light of it. Look at verse 33. Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint. And verse 35, and let them gather all of the food. And I mean, he gives, he doesn't just give him the interpretation of the dream, which is all Pharaoh asked for. He didn't tell Pharaoh what he should do in light of it. And then he tells him the consequences like a prophet if he doesn't. Look at verse 36. Then that food shall be, shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt. That the land of Egypt may not perish during the famine. Now, there's a very key phrase here in verse 36. Because if you read that in the English, it may, you may just think that he's basically saying, you need to store up this grain so that whenever the famine comes, people won't starve to death. That's not the words that Joseph uses here. He uses the word that the land might not be cut off. It means that your kingdom will not be, will not come to an end. I mean, he's basically saying to Pharaoh, your kingdom will be no more if you don't do what I say. He's standing here like a prophet. Egypt will not be cut off. Now, can you imagine this? This is the most powerful man on the planet who thinks he's God incarnate, and he asks for interpretation of a dream. Joseph gives him the right interpretation of the dream, tells him what he needs to do in light of it, and says if you don't do it, not just you, but your entire kingdom will be removed from the face of the planet. So says the God that a Hebrew slave worships. Pretty big faith, isn't it? Look at verses 37 through 39. <clears throat> okay, what's going to happen? Can he lop his head off? Remember, this is the guy who was in prison with the baker and the, and the cupbearer who was there just because he ticked Pharaoh off one day. I mean, Joseph's got a pattern of how Pharaoh responds whenever things don't go his way. In verse 37... Pharaoh listens and likes the advice. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. Oh, yeah, absolutely, this is great. All the guys who couldn't tell him. And then Pharaoh says in verse 38, Can we find such a man as this in whom is the Spirit of God? And that's not a statement of faith on Pharaoh's part, but recognition. I mean, Joseph's pretty bold in what he says here. I mean, Pharaoh is basically saying, hey, guys, let's ride this horse. I mean, this guy, I mean, nobody else could figure it out. You got the right interpretation? Sounds like a good plan. 
evident that God is with him. And look at what he says in verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You will be over my house. Verse 41, you'll be the prime minister of Egypt. Verse 42, you'll have my power. Here's my signet ring. Verse 42, you'll have my favor. Here is my garment. You'll have my wealth, gold necklace. You'll have my status, chariot. All in Egypt will bow the knee to you. And you will have a life here. I'll change your name. And you will have a wife of the who is the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, a false god. So, in verse 45, Joseph went out, all, went out over all the land of Egypt. And here is the dramatic climax, the thunderclap in verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt to declare who he was standing. Man, what a story. You'll be over my palace. You'll be second in command. you have power, favor, wealth, status. You'll have a life here, the best life here. And he's 30 years of age, and he stands at the right hand of the king of Egypt. It's a statement to where we would behold Wow. What should you take from that? Is this the payoff for Joseph? Should we be thinking, finally, after all of these years being done wrong, Joseph is finally rewarded? Is that what Moses wants us to see here? It's not. Because God has much more in mind than all of those things that Pharaoh offers Joseph. If you look closer, there's actually a contrast in this entire story between what Pharaoh gives Joseph and what God has promised Joseph. I think what Moses wants us to see is it's not Joseph finally has payoff for his faithfulness, but that his, that, that his payoff is, is yet to come. Here is a pagan kingdom versus being the favored son in a patriarch's home. Remember, this is a story of Jacob, not Joseph, right? Joseph started this whole story back in chapter 37 as the favorite son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. He was in the position to receive blessing, and he was looking after the house of Jacob. He was in the line of promise, He was in the land of promise. He was in the lineage of the covenant. He's been successful in every venture since he's been ripped out of the land. Now he stands beside the most powerful man on the planet. But his position there is nothing compared to being the favored son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, who has a covenant God who's made a promise. Now surely the position that Joseph's in is much more comfortable than he was in the prison. 
But as we learned last week, location doesn't always equate to significance. Joseph might be successful. He's successful in the world. And while he is exalted, think about this, he's still a slave and he's still serving a man who's worshipped as God. Think of it this way. Would you think a Christian who is an excellent administrator, who climbs the ladder to become the chief executive officer of Planned Parenthood, would you think that they're successful? That somehow God had rewarded them? Would you think that a, that a Christian who's been an excellent administrator using the gifts that God has given him or her, whether they sought that position or not, finally gets promoted in a company that denies the existence of God and works to promote Islam to try to declare that the God of the Hebrews is not the one true and living God? Would, would you think that God had rewarded him for his faithfulness? That's exactly where Joseph's at. He's exalted to the right hand of someone who declares himself to be God incarnate. And Joseph remains faithful to the Lord. But this is not his victory. His earthly wealth from Pharaoh. Pharaoh closed him with his best wealth. He put jewels on him, fine linen. Puts his robe on him. But can you think back in Genesis 37 when... There was another robe that was even more significant placed upon Joseph. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, and he made him a coat of, we call many colors. It was a coat of blessing. Pharaoh gave his signet ring, meaning that he had control over Pharaoh's affairs, but that's ex- exactly where Jacob intended Joseph to be. I mean, you see a picture here. Joseph's in the wrong land, serving the wrong leader of the wrong nation. Here is worship of Egyptians versus a patriarch's adoration. All of Egypt bows the knee to Joseph, but can you remember a dream back in chapter 37 where other people were bowing the knee to Joseph? The start of this whole thing? The dream that God gave Joseph to declare what is going to happen yet in the future. The sons of Jacob bowed down. And in the second dream, even, even the son of Isaac bows down. And you remember, all of, they're all offended. Pharaoh's not offended. They're all offended because God gives him a dream that's going to save them. Pharaoh's not offended whenever God gives Joseph a dream to save Egypt. His name is changed in verse 45 to reflect who he serves and and his uh, identity. We're not told what, what this name means in verse 45 when Pharaoh changes Joseph's name, but you can think back in the book of Genesis, the change of name has significance. Abram to Abraham, Sarah to Sarah to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, and all of those had significance before the Lord. Abraham was renamed because he's the father of many nations. Joseph's name change goes in the opposite direction. It's not toward the covenant God, it's away from the covenant God. Back in Genesis 30, verse 24, Joseph was given his name from Rachel's prayer for God to give her more more children. 
while we don't know what Zaphonath, means, it surely is not tied to the covenant of God. It's probably tied to a pagan deity. Can you think of some other Hebrew boys and their names were changed? Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael? Azariah? I don't think that when the, when, the, when the friends of Daniel read the book of Genesis, they thought Joseph's name changed. Oh, that's a good thing. So this must be good for us when we got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He goes, he gets a pagan wife. Would you think that a Christian who marries an unbelieving woman who is actually the daughter of a witch would be they're in a good position? And then they had kids and raised those children in the influence of the witch and a godless country would be a good position to be in? Not a good position to be in. That's exactly what happens to Joseph here. Verse 45, he gave him his wife the daughter of Potiphar the priest. And so Joseph went out all over the land of Egypt. The final assimilation in the Egyptian society is he given a pagan wife who is a very important woman. Can you think back in the story of Genesis where the, wife, the wives of the, of the children of Abraham were very important? Genesis 24, Abraham goes to great lengths not to marry among the Canaanites, and then Isaac follows the same. Can you think of a bad example even in this story? Judah is surely not somebody that you want to hold up. Even in this story, he goes and finds a wife. Can you think of another Egyptian woman that was married to Abraham, Hagar, who had Ishmael, who helped bring Joseph to this place? Is she viewed as a, as a positive thing? So whenever Abraham and Sarah took the covenant in their own hands, surely we see the hand of God placing Joseph in this place, but this place is not payday. God has much more in store. He's a believer working for an anti-God company who promotes false worship, lives in a foreign land that's godless, served by godless people. His name is changed probably to praise false gods. He marries an unbeliever whose father is a witch, has children being raised around poor pagan worship. That's not success. It's better comfortable circumstances than being in the prison, but this is not payday. Look at verse... 50, because here is where the story turns. And here is where you can find hope and faith. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. So you got the seven years of prosperity and everything's happening exactly the way he's continuing to be successful. And then he has two sons. Now look at how the text repeats again whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Just make sure that you get the fact that these are kids from a pagan priest's daughter. And Joseph names them Manasseh and says, God has made me forget all of the toil in my father's house in the name of the second. He called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
Now, I want you to know that up to this point, everything's been directed by Pharaoh. And this is the first time that Joseph really has been able to make a decision. Pharaoh gives Joseph the position. He clothes him. Pharaoh commands all to bow the knee to him. Pharaoh changes his name. Pharaoh marries him to the witch's daughter or the warlock's daughter. But Joseph names his children. And he names them Hebrew names. Children of the covenant. And each of the names, just like Pharaoh had an intent of shaving him and clothing him in an Egyptian and changing his name to an Egyptian name, Joseph also has a point to declare his faith by what he names these two boys. He's declaring these boys are Hebrews no matter who the mother is. That's what he's saying. They're children of the covenant. And when Joseph is given a chance to reveal to us whether he has accepted his Egyptian identity or whether he, where he places his hope in the future, is it Egypt? He surely has every right to do that, right? I mean, look at what he got in the land of Canaan. Look what he got from his brothers. Look at what he got from his father. Look at, look at all of the, the bad deals that have come to Joseph. And now he finally gets his day in the sun. I deserve this, right? And what does... Joseph say, I renounce the covenant, God. I'm not an Egyptian. He shouts loudly, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If he had chosen Egypt, he would have given them Egyptian names. Manasseh is means to forget, and Ephraim means fruitful. Now think about the significance of this. I know we're, we're coming to the end of our time, but think about the significance of Joseph doing this. Joseph's boss is the Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh has changed Joseph's name. His wife is an Egyptian. His in-laws are Egyptian. His entire world has been Egyptian from 17 years of age to 37 years of age. 30 years when he stands before Pharaoh. Before the famine, seven good years, he's 37 now, have all been Egyptian. 20 years away from home, and he declares his allegiance and identity to the God of Abraham and the covenant of God. That's faith. And when he says Manasseh means forget, Joseph is not saying he's forgotten the father of, or the covenant. He's saying he's forgotten the hardship of the past. It's a, it's a declaration of, of grace. Joseph had every human reason to be angry with his brothers and his family, but, but he names his son a picture of grace. I, I will forget that. I will. He will not remember the hardship but who hold on to the future promise that God has made to the family through his son Manasseh. Ephraim, fruitful. God has made me fruitful in verse 52. In the land of my affliction. He is a slave from the land of the Hebrews, but he names his second child fruitful in the land of my, what? Affliction. Joseph goes even further here by choosing the name Ephraim. Joseph is declaring God is the one who has made him fruitful. It's not all the gold in Egypt or the fine clothes or the jewels or the position that he considers fruitfulness, but God's blessing. 
and he's living in the land of Egypt, the land of wealth beyond what he could ever experience. He's a shepherd's son. He's not a rich kid, but he calls it the land of affliction. Joseph's not an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew among the Egyptians. And in naming his two sons, he declares the promise of Abraham. He identifies himself with the God of Abraham, with the land of promise and the blessing of Abraham. And now let's watch God bring the whole story into focus. Look at verse 53. Then seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the famine was in all the lands. But in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And look where Pharaoh says to go. Go to the Hebrew. Go to Joseph, and whatever he says to you to do, do. And the famine was all over the whole earth. So not just Egypt looked to a son of Abraham, but the whole earth looks to a son of Abraham. And Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was so severe in the land, all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. Do you think all the lands is something that's repeated here for an importance? The land didn't produce, but because the child of Abraham was there in the position that God had placed him, they could go to him and he would give them what he needed. Not God incarnate Pharaoh, not an Egyptian, but a Hebrew. And now the plan comes into full view. Twenty years before the famine, God knew that the land would cease to produce and that people would starve without help. And Egypt would have sufficient resources if it was planned properly, to store grain during the good years. And so he sent a dream to Joseph foreshadowing what he was doing. And then he used the hatred of Joseph's brothers. He used the rejected sons of Ishmael to bring Joseph to Egypt. He made sure that Potiphar's house is where he would land. He preserved him from adultery. He orchestrated his imprisonment so he could meet the king's baker and the cupbearer and interpret dreams, and all of that occurred. So the cupbearer could remember Joseph when God sent Pharaoh a dream that he couldn't interpret when he was troubled, and the dream would lead to Joseph being placed in power and grain preserved, and Egypt would become the place where the covenant people of God would be preserved and by grain and survive, and all of the world would look to the Hebrew to find their physical salvation. Pull those three implications up. I don't have time to go through them, but I do want you to at least write them down. Here are three things that I would write down and take away from this story. God always has more in mind. You might add whatever earthly blessings come to you. I think it's a general principle God has more in mind. Number two, I think that you should remember what Joseph remembers. I got number two from Vodi. Don't forget this world is the land of our affliction no matter how good it gets. He is a slave taken out of the land of the Hebrews and he lives in the land of affliction with all of its opulence and wealth. Do you see the world as a land of affliction? 
Or have you put roots deep down in the pleasures of this world? If God rips them up, He's being very gracious. And never forget who you are, no matter how the world tries to force you into its mold. You're a Christ follower. Joseph is a child of the covenant. Names matter. And there's a new name written down in glory. And it's mine. Yes, it's mine. Is it yours? Look to the God of a Hebrew slave who was placed exactly where he needed to be for God to orchestrate all things together to plan for the day in which he would enter the world, bear the sin, the fall, bear your sin, crucified and rise from the dead victorious over the grave and be offered to you freely if you would put your faith in Him. Not in the wisdom of the world or the magicians, but in Christ. Would you bow your heads?